So is this the new normal? Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. If you live in New York City, you can't get away from it. The numbers of those infected and dying keep mounting. Jobs are gone. There's no one on the streets. People are afraid to share elevators, much less take public transportation. Worst of all, there seems to be no end in sight. With us again to discuss the state of COVID-19 and to take a look at the future is Dr. Ed Telzak, Chair of the Department of Medicine at SBH Health System. Welcome, Dr. Telzak. Thank you, Steve. So I understand we flattened the curve, and that's good news. But what does that really mean? Well, I think from a practical point of view, hospitals in New York City remain overwhelmed. I would say two weekends ago, maybe April 3rd, 4th, 5th, around that time, the rate of increase in terms of patients coming to the hospital, requiring intubations and mechanical ventilation, patients on the floor getting worse and requiring intubations, the emergency room and the ICUs being so far beyond capacity, that was an adaptation that was unthinkable a month or two ago. I would say since that time, the rate of increase has slowed down. We still remain well above anything that we're fully capable of doing. So I would say we may be flattening out, but we certainly are not flat. Many patients continue to come to the emergency room. Many patients continue to require mechanical ventilation and a far, far too many patients are dying. So in terms of how our hospital is functioning, we're still very well beyond our normal capacity. Okay, so the modeling notwithstanding, if you're a fly on the wall, what you're seeing today is as bad as it was two weeks ago or worse, right? I think it's as bad as it was two weeks ago. But, you know, one of the things uh, is very important to understand about our hospital is we are a freestanding community teaching hospital in the South Bronx, South Central Bronx. And we alone are responsible for what we do. We don't have a parent hospital who's looking out for us. We don't have a corporation who's looking out for us. So I think two weeks ago, 10 days ago, I don't think is an underestimate or an overestimate to say that we were overwhelmed. I think we've had two weeks to adapt to what is a completely overwhelming situation. And we've put processes in place. We've put programs in place. We've tried to recruit additional physicians, additional nursing, additional respiratory therapists. We've uh, opened up new intensive care units where we can consolidate staff that has the expertise. We've taught staff to develop the expertise to take care of critically ill patients. And so I feel like there's a semblance of control at the moment that didn't exist 
as we were on the steepest part of the curve. Once again, I think I cannot convey to you the challenges that we still have. On the other hand, I think our institution has been remarkably nimble in attempting to adjust to these challenges. We've opened up many hospitalist beds, so patients who require a level of care that is below intensive care. Our intensive care program, which generally cares for, let's say, 15 to 17 acutely ill patients requiring mechanical ventilation, we're now in the 80 to 85 range. So five times as many patients are requiring mechanical ventilation as is normal for us. We've expanded space. We've expanded staff. I'm on the phone every day reaching out to the medical corps of volunteers, seeing if people are willing to come to our institution. But I can also help emphasize that we are an institution alone without, you know, certainly Greater New York is helping us. But until very recently, almost everything that we've done, we've done alone. I think in the last week or so, with uh, Governor Cuomo's emphasis on hospitals reaching out to one another, we've been able to transfer a substantial number of patients, and I think that will help us out enormously. So right now, I know it's a day-to-day situation, but right now, is the hospital okay in terms of ventilators, PPE, beds, doctors? I would say that we have enough ventilators. We've had about, I would say, in the range of 12 to 15 ventilators available uh, for patients who come in. Um, And that's been steady for the past week. I must say that normally we have 50 ventilators in the hospital, We now have 105 total ventilators in the hospital, approximately 85 to 90 are being used. However, within, you know, two weeks ago with this dramatic upsurge, we were down to five ventilators. Fortunately, the state helped us out and we received additional ventilators. First, we received 25 ventilators, then we received 10, then we received five So we're now up to more than twice the number of ventilators that we ordinarily have. But when we were down to five, we activated our triage committee. And it was on a Friday. I remember it distinctly. It was two Fridays ago. We were down to five ventilators. We were intubating between five and 10 patients a day. And we thought we would have to make the extremely challenging decision of who gets the next ventilator. Who do we take a ventilator away from so that we can give it to a person who either is deteriorating on the floor and requires mechanical ventilation or one coming in from the ED who has a greater likelihood of survival, both short-term and midterm? Fortunately, we received our first infusion of 25 ventilators on that Saturday, but we were already drawing up plans, drawing up lists. All of us, and there were five of us on what's called the triage committee, felt was a just an inconceivable and overwhelming decision about deciding 
who gets the next ventilator and who do we take a ventilator away from. Fortunately, you know, we had our list prepared, but we have not had to reach that point. And with the curve flattening a bit, our number of available ventilators, which is a measure that is not tracked routinely by the state, but the number of available ventilators has remained steady for the past week. Well, let me ask you, Dr. Telzak, you know, we hear from the White House briefings that anyone who wants testing can get testing. Are you seeing that? Absolutely not. We're running out of, we meaning the city and state are still providing fairly strict guidance about who gets testing. The underpinning of the guidance is that if we were to offer testing to everyone who wanted it, we wouldn't be able to test those who absolutely need it. And the groups of people who absolutely need testing are those who are admitted to the hospital. Uh, so we could know whether or not their admission is COVID related. Though I must say at this point, probably 90% of our admissions are COVID related. And 80 to 85% of our hospital beds are uh, occupied by individuals with COVID. Uh, the other group where it's critically important that we get testing are healthcare workers. We've had many healthcare workers at St. Barnabas who have had to been on isolation because they've tested positive. Many who have been quarantined because they've developed symptoms suggestive of COVID, mild or, or moderate symptoms uh, that didn't require hospitalization, who tested negative, but we still think uh, might be positive. So for healthcare workers, it's really imperative they be tested quickly. And one of the significant advances in this overall effort is in the past week, we've developed in-house rapid testing capability that we now use for healthcare workers. So we can provide the information the same day or the following day for our healthcare workers who develop symptoms. And I think we've probably had in the range of 130 healthcare workers. And once again, we're a relatively, I would say, modest-sized institution, but 130 healthcare workers who have developed a, a positive test and have been symptomatic. With a great deal of pain that I also you know, want to convey, one of our surgeons passed away from COVID and whose name was Ron Verrier. And that's been an incredible loss uh, for the entire institution and the physicians. And, and it really brings home to bear the fact that how important it is to have adequate personal protective equipment or PPE and really what a devastating disease this can be for healthcare workers who get infected. Yes, I mean, you're truly on the front lines and it's, I know it's, um, it's scary. I'm sure, you know, every day you wonder, is it possible I could have been exposed? I think that's certainly a major issue among a very broad range of workers in the institution. It's not just doctors and nurses, it's respiratory therapists, it's people who deliver meals, it's individuals who clean the rooms, even administrative staff who are looking around to make sure that there are adequate resources. 
So it's a very large number of people who are putting themselves at risk. But I would say for the majority of those people, they feel like they're doing the work that needs to be done. They feel that at this time, this is where they need to be and this is where they are. Yeah. And, and I've been very moved by the large number of individuals in my department who are very motivated to contribute in any way that they can uh, to try to deal with this really horrendous uh, pandemic. Yeah, I know. I, I've spoken over the weeks to a number of different medicine and emergency medicine residents who are young doctors, maybe one, two, three years out of medical school. And to everyone I've spoken to, and again, you're the general, you speak to them, they're your troops. They say, this is what we signed up for, you know, and they seem gung-ho, as difficult as it may be. What it takes to respond to an epidemic like this at the hospital level is really a very large number of people with multiple job descriptions. But in terms of the physician nursing effort, I think the ED is the emergency department at our institution has really been heroic in their efforts. I think the ICU, at present, there are five ICUs running 85 ventilators. Uh, so ICUs have been created from floors, from ambulatory surgery spaces, from endoscopy suites. And the ICU has responded in really a dramatic way. I just want to make one point about the ICU. Normally, we have a medical ICU, a surgical ICU, and anesthesia does what anesthesia does. Because of our very significant staffing shortage from the physician point of view, we've actually broken down those traditional departmental silos. And we just have critical care teams who are responsible for certain areas of the hospital. And the critical care teams are made up of intensivists from the Department of Medicine, my department, intensivists from the uh, surgical department, uh, anesthesiologists, uh, all supported, and this again in the intensive care unit, by medical doctors, surgical doctors, medical residents, surgical residents that are each doing what they can to take care of these extremely ill patients. Right. And the notion of the surge, which you know we heard about several weeks before we experienced it, we heard about in Italy, we heard about in Spain, was all predicated on the fact that we would have to expand our abilities beyond our capability of delivering high-level care. And as our quantity has increased so dramatically, and I would say this is true of every hospital, our quality has taken a bit of a hit. And I think that's true of every institution. And this is why it's so important to support our hospitals as the front line and to try to decrease that peak as soon as possible so that we can have appropriate staffing for the large number of patients who require care and in particular critical care in the institution. Right. Let's look a little bit into the future now. You know, we hear a lot about antibody testing 
Is that coming anytime soon? And why, if it is, is it so important? So I don't have any inside information on when antibody testing is going to be available to the public, to healthcare workers, and especially to healthcare workers in community hospitals in the South Central Bronx, such as ours. Having said that, people that are involved in that effort feel now that there are some antibody tests that are available. The ability to do large numbers of uh, individuals to test for antibodies is still not there, but that over the uh, subsequent weeks to maybe a month or more, that maybe many thousands of individuals can be tested. I think there are a lot of questions still about antibody testing. Really, what antibody testing means is we're trying to determine if a person has been infected and whether they've developed some level of protective immunity as measured by antibody. Uh, It's an inexact and an incomplete measure of immunity. Nevertheless, for many diseases, having antibodies is comparable to having protection from reinfection, at least for a period of time. That hypothesis has not been proven yet, but it certainly is true of certain other coronaviruses and of many other viral diseases. It's, I would say, most notably not true of HIV. So it first needs to be shown that having antibody provides protection. And then over time, if it does provide protection, we'll figure out how long that protection lasts. But assuming that it does provide protection, which I think is a reasonable hypothesis at the moment, it will be one method by which it can be decided which healthcare workers, which other populations can go back to work, can go back into a more normal uh, lifestyle, at least until that period of time when a vaccine or treatment is available. You know, there are lots of treatments that are being discussed, that are being used without a lot of data, but there are some clinical trials that are taking place. And, you know, we're hopeful that there'll be therapy that is proven to be effective. That does not exist at the moment, though there are therapies that are being used. And so with therapy, with a vaccine, with antibody protection, possibly, that will begin to be able to develop a plan for normalizing how we go back to some semblance of our, our formal life. But to get back to your particular question about antibodies, I think we're a good month or two away from having widespread antibody testing. And once we do, we actually have to prove that antibodies are protective. And then we have to find out how long, if they are protective, how long they work. But it's certainly a very important part of the overall strategy of not living this uh, life of social distancing and isolation. Right. I want to also touch briefly, because we don't have that much time left. Again, we're hearing a lot about, you know, off-label drugs, you know, the anti-malaria and lupus drug as an example. I know, you know, at St. Barnabas Hospital, these drugs or various drugs 
are being used. What's your feeling about proactively moving forward in that direction? Well, I think we really don't know whether these drugs work. We've already had one negative consequence where individuals, uh, for example, with lupus who rely on these drugs have had limited access because of the widespread use for patients with COVID. It's also being used as prophylaxis if a healthcare worker or a contact has a documented exposure to someone who tests positive. I think as long as clinical trials are being done that can answer the question, and as long as there aren't clear negative consequences of using the drug, we're in desperate situations. Uh, we have to realize, though, I continually emphasize this to the, you know, to the physicians in my department, that we have no idea whether the multiplicity of interventions that are being used, and they're being used in almost every major academic medical center across the country, whether these drugs have any benefit for patients. So I think we're uh, throwing many things at the wall and seeing what sticks and then going with that. These are desperate situations. And I think doctors are looking for any signal. And all of these interventions have some signal, whether it's in vitro, whether it's based on some efficacy in prior coronavirus outbreaks, there is some signal for almost all of the interventions that are being used. But under ordinary times, a signal like this would not result in such widespread use. And so we need to be very cautious. And I think we can't tell our patients that this is effective therapy. This is very much experimental therapy that we're using. Right. I know you've got to run. I have one more question. From your perspective, where you sit, is it realistic that the country can, quote, open up three weeks from now, two weeks from now? I think that's a complete pipe dream. You know, we're going to, and I hope that the individuals who were empowered to make these decisions look at the experience in China, look at the experience from Italy and Spain, who were several weeks ahead of us in this epidemic, and learn what the benefits and what the consequences are of opening up. America is not unique, and we need to learn from our colleagues who are several weeks ahead of us about what works. What I would say is that social distancing is absolutely critical at this point. And I would also say that individuals wearing masks, face and, and nose coverings is absolutely critical. I think the wearing of masks has not been emphasized in New York City to the degree that it needs to. And I think Los Angeles has been the model and New York City has been slow in social distancing and in emphasizing wearing masks. But in terms of opening up, I think there's going to have to be a very serious risk-benefit calculation and that the overwhelming likelihood is that when we open up, there are going to be more infections. That's why antibodies might be, for example, those who have antibodies might be the first group to open up. And uh, there are lots of people thinking about the 
best way to open up. What I would say is our effort in this country in terms of containment, which is really the first goal, identifying those who are positive, isolating them, and then quarantining and testing their contacts was a miserable failure. When we open up, we need to have the resources, we need to have the people who will test anyone who's symptomatic, will be able to do contact tracing, and will enforce quarantine and isolation for those who are positive. And, you know, once again, that first essential public health intervention did not exist in this country. When we open up, that is essential to try to minimize what I think we can say with a high degree of confidence, there'll be a larger number of infections by opening up and there'll be a risk-benefit calculation. I hope that my next podcast will be well on our way to being on the downslope of the curve and some of the strategies for opening up society and normalizing what occurs in hospitals will be the discussion and not the surge that we've spent so much time speaking on today. Let's pray for that. Thanks, Dr. Telzak. Thank you, Steve. Dr. Telzak, thank you very much for joining us today on SBH Bronx Health Talk. Again, for more information on COVID-19 or to donate to the effort in the fight against the virus, visit www.sbhny.org. And thank you for joining us today.